So I, uh, I got a text uh, right before I got up here from my mother-in-law, Cheryl, and she, uh, it was a picture of her and Grandma Doris, and she said, we're watching online, and, and so Cheryl's mom, Ellie's great-grandma, Ellie's grandma, Ellie's grandma, our kid's great-grandma, uh, Doris, so I said I'd say hi. Hi, Doris. How are you? Hi. Um, I'm excited that you guys are watching, um, and uh, you know, it kind of does something to you when you get a little text like that, and you're like, oh, uh, your grandma, like, Doris, Nana's watching. Like, that's okay, so definitely shoes on for that one. You guys don't have to worry about anything, because I can tell you, like, multiple times I showed up to the Mother's Day brunch at Stockdale Country Club in Bakersfield, uh, where um, Boompa and Nana uh, invited us, and I maybe didn't have, you know, the nicest Sunday outfit on, and um, and I, you know, she was very nice about it, but I had to remember, like, okay, there's some, you know, some rules that I need to follow here. So with that in mind, I'm going to try to be very composed and very mature during this entire message. Um, there is something unique about um, knowing that someone's watching you and that people are maybe like uh, evaluating uh, the things that you're doing. I remember being in my first uh, preaching class, and I know you're laughing. You're like, what? You took classes on that? I couldn't tell. Um, and, uh, and in my preaching class, what we had to do was there was a room in the back. It was like a soundproof booth with a glass window and a, and, a, and a video camera, and our professor would sit in this back room while we gave our sermons to the class, and he would talk into a video camera while it recorded us, giving us notes and feedback on our sermons. You couldn't hear him, you could only see him, and then you were going to go home and you were going to watch that tape, and you were going to get all of this, like, hopefully not brutal feedback, you know, and it was the weirdest, strangest feeling um, to, like, do something like that, having a person and watch you thinking the whole time they're evaluating me. They're like testing me on this. This is a big deal. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of a situation, but I think that um, what I've come to realize is that a lot of us, without thinking about it, um, consciously, we view God that way. We think of God as sitting up there on his cloud or throne or however you're thinking about it in your mind up in heaven with a big beard maybe that's your mental image and um and he's looking down and he's kind of evaluating you and he's going all right you know let's do the right thing here right and so a lot of times when we're having conversations in our own lives and our families sometimes even here in church and leadership like we we kind of will talk about that like we'll acknowledge like well well like uh, okay like let's not like, are we, are we thinking right now? Are we afraid that God is up there and he's looking at us and he's, and he's upset with us and that he's, uh, he's, he's like telling us this is a really big deal. You better not blow this. Um, as, as a family, as we're trying to make a decision, as I'm trying to make a decision in my life, am I making it? Because yes, we know that God is, uh, is actually within us. The Holy Spirit's in us. And so he's always a part of our lives. Um, but it's easy to get stuck thinking that he is only evaluating us and testing us and kind of judging us in this scary way, and, uh, and we have this great fear that we're going to blow it, right, that we're going to one day meet him, and he's in heaven, and he's going to say, oh, man, you really blew it, you know. Uh, we, we sometimes get caught up thinking that way. In fact, during COVID, like, a lot of us, all of us have been dealing with so many different things in life changing that we're reevaluating things in our lives, and as we reevaluate things, 
we're sometimes feeling that way. We're going, I don't want to do the wrong thing, right? I don't want to make a big mistake. I, I know even as church leaders, as we met and talked about church and meeting and having church and what our priorities are and what we do, that's, a, that's the biggest part of the discussion really is, first and foremost, what does God want us to do, you know? Is he kind of looking at us and is he kind of judging us and, and what, is he, what is he thinking, you know, or what is he, you know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, um, I think that's you know, if you've ever been to counseling, they, well, whether you've been to counseling or not, people uh, will often say that when you have major transitions in life, those are times, especially as like a married couple, you should consider going to counseling. Uh, because those are times that without realizing it, you stop and you have to kind of reevaluate things, right? And go, okay, like what's healthy, what's good right now? If you have a big move, um, if you um, have a, a loss of a loved one that's really major, if you have a job change, if COVID hits, then like you uh, maybe should think about sitting down with a counselor and saying, how are things going right now? Uh, in that same way, I think as a church, we were starting to feel as leaders like in this time, in a time like this, when so much is up in the air and there's so many difficult things, so many things that used to be simple that seem to be difficult, is there a way that we can stop for a second and kind of try to hone in on the most important things and what are those things? And that's the reason why as we take a break from Acts, uh, we take a break looking at the topic of love in this new series called The Way of Love in 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and um, we're actually going to start this week at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, um, because in wanting these messages to be a little shorter and also to be able to give them the adequate amount of like focus and emphasis, um, I, I was kind of realizing, I think we need to just talk about what leads up to this passage, this incredibly, the, the most well-known passage on love, writing potentially on love um, in at least the Western world that we know. Um, is 1 Corinthians 13. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 12, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Um, and we're going to take it very sort of a piece by piece, and I'm simply going to, we're going to read it, and then I'm just going to say this is what this is talking about. Um, Paul has written this letter to the Corinthian church, and uh, if you're familiar with the letter at all, uh, there's some not very good things happening in the church. They're dealing with a lot of strife within their church. No, that's not why we're going through this series. Um, they're, they're dealing with a lot of strife, and the strife has to do with a couple of different things. It has to do with things like uh, some of them say uh, they're like fighting over which leaders are the best leaders. So they're saying, well, well, I follow uh, Apollos and I follow Peter and I follow Paul and I follow this person. Uh, there's like division amongst people about who the best people and groups are to follow. It's like the beginnings of the church starting to wanting to break off in little tiny groups of no, we're better, we're better. Uh, you have people who are arguing because they say, well, my gifts are more important. I'm more important. There should be more people like me in the church. Uh, probably that means there are leaders saying that as well. Uh, Paul's writing to like, uh, there's, there's all kinds of like, you know, immorality and stuff going on. And so Paul's writing this letter to this church in Corinth, and it's a pretty harsh letter. And, uh, and he, in it, he says some of the most well-known and like poetic things that Paul ever says in his letters. And I think it's because of how hard Paul is trying to do something that the Bible talks about, which is speaking the truth in love. When you want to speak the truth in love to people, you spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to say because you want them to take it the right way. And that's why these passages are so 
they, they, they have so much meaning and significance. So uh, the first verse that we're going to look at is uh, right there at the end of uh, chapter 12, and um, it's uh, verse 27 in 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, what he says there is, uh, could you, sorry to advance my first slide, I'm still getting my thing connected here. Um, what he says there is this, he says, uh, sorry Steve, could you do my next slide? Thanks. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Uh, now, uh, he, he says this, and uh, this is in reference to obviously one of like the huge themes throughout 1 Corinthians, which is parts of a body, right? This idea of the church is like a physical human body. We all have different parts. Okay, I've got it now. Thanks, Steve. Um, and so what he's saying here is really simple. It's really clear. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it because you're probably familiar with it, but it's this, and it's important. You've gone from a whole to a part. So you as a person, now that you're a part of Christ, now that you're a Christian, you have gone from existing as your own whole thing to being a part of something that has pieces, that has parts to it right? That's a huge deal. That's like a huge way of changing how we live. Now, in traditional cultures, this wasn't as much of a shift to make because you were a part of a big family. You were a part of a big community. You kind of always saw yourself as a part. But in sort of a modern individualistic culture, this is a hard shift for us to make. In fact, when you think about spiritual lives and your spiritual life, you probably think about it largely in terms of your personal spiritual life, your personal relationship with Jesus, right? We, we make it a very, it's a very personal, individual decision, and, uh, and we emphasize that so much in the church uh, nowadays because as people, uh, we feel that um, we are a, our own separate whole. And so when I uh, talk about me and God, I don't want that to be dependent on anyone else. I don't want it to be dependent on anything else. I should be able to pursue God and have a relationship with him even without anyone else being a part of that, right? Because we all know what people are like in institutions and the church and organizations and we're skeptical and we have issues with all of them and everything and everything can be corrupted and look at everything that's happened throughout history and look at how much people have hurt me in my life and look at how much it feels like people have kept me from God. In fact, it feels like the reason I, I have God in my life is because it's the one thing that is what, it's like different from all the people and the relationships. Uh, it's so easy for us to think of it that way and even inadvertently communicate it that way. Well, the way, the, that's not what you hear about in the gospel of Jesus, what you hear about, especially in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about following him. The reason we get that impression is because a lot of people at that time had reduced being uh, uh, one of God's children, a part of God's kingdom, as just be a part of our Jewish community. Follow our rules, do our things. And if you do those things, then uh, you'll be good. And Jesus spends a lot of time talking to those people saying it's what happens on the inside. It's your heart. It's this thing in your heart. And we've taken that and sometimes we go a little crazy with it and we say all that matters is what's happening internally with you and with God and you can be whole by yourself. One of the verses that has gained a sort of a new popularity these days is the verse that says, do not forsake meeting together as some have grown in the habit of doing. That's become a big deal now that we have 
lost the ability to meet together, many of us. We've started asking ourselves the question, what is that, what is that important? Like, should we be doing that? What about that command, right? Well, in the church, we've talked for years about how, in our church, we've talked for years about how what that passage is speaking to more than anything is people who are Christians who believe that they can be whole in Christ and separate from a group of people like the church. So if you know somebody who's like, I, I don't currently, part, I'm not a part of a church, I don't really go to a church, I don't really have a church home, um, but I worship Christ this way and this way and this way, uh, individually in my home, my family, things like that, then that passage would apply to them. Because that, what that person is saying is, I can be fully me in Christ and not necessarily have this other thing that I'm a part of. So what Paul's saying here to the church, he's saying, listen, guys, no matter how much difficulty you're having with each other, you got to know one thing. First thing, it's important. You have gone in Christ from being a whole thing in and of yourself to a part of something. And then he elaborates on what that looks like. He says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. There is a lot that he's saying here, but the, the, the biggest part of it is this. He is saying not only are you a part of something now, he's saying a healthy body is made up of different parts, okay? Here's the deal. I don't want to get too gross with you, but if, think, if you think about a body that is made up of all the same parts, right, a bunch of hands, a bunch of feet, that's like straight out of a horror movie, right? We would call that an abomination. We would say that is a sort of a grotesque, mis, like uh, malformed version of a body. There's nothing about that body that is healthy. And uh, now I'm kind of thinking like, what would be a cool children's ministry, you know, thing? They would probably just all scare kids, right? It's like, you know, draw a picture of like a body of all feet or of all hands, right? Or of all heads. That would be terrifying. Uh, but this is what Paul's saying. He's saying a healthy body, because you're in the body of Christ, has different parts. So stop expecting other people to be like you, and stop telling other people that, that they shouldn't be the way they are and that they should have different gifts or be a different way. Stop valuing some over others because the fact is a body needs all the various different parts. Now, he emphasizes a lot as he lists off these, 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 these things about these different, these different jobs, you know, these different roles. And he lists off all the spiritual gifts. But the, the main thing that he's saying is, one, they're different He's also saying God gave them out. He's saying God appointed these gifts. He gave them to us. You don't get to pick yours. You don't get to, to work really hard at it and then earn it. You don't get to say, I, I, I like what that gift brings someone in the community, in the church, and so I'm going to do that. Uh, I mean, the fact is, at any given time, uh, certain gifts are going to be more popular, more enjoyable, more valued and affirmed than others. There are some that bring more notoriety and more attention. And some of us who don't want anything to do with attention and notoriety say, the last thing I want is that gift. And I know people who have been dragged, kicking and screaming into vocational ministry, called up in front of groups of people, uh, dragged into it, it almost feels, because the last thing they wanted was to be uh, receiving any kind of like attention in how they use their gift. And I know other people, I know a lot of people who have like sought after and wanted gifts and strengths and, and, and to be a part of the body that lets them have those things 
when they're not called to do it. So God gives it out, and they're different. But he also says, don't settle for the unspiritual ones. He's saying you should aspire for the higher things. So he's saying the evangelist who has the boldness and the courage should aspire to have the faith of the apostle that sends them out on their own to start something new. He says the teacher should have the, aspire to have the courage of the evangelist um, who is comfortable speaking to those who don't know the Lord, who, who should have the heart that breaks for the lost and not just for the sheep, right, um, within the flock, that, that, the, that the shepherd um, who loves and cares for people should uh, aspire to have uh, the, the trust and the self-sacrifice of those who give, right? The prophet, the person who speaks with conviction, no matter what the cost, right, that person should love people too because if you've ever seen a person out on a street corner with a sign that says really condemning things, and they would say, I'm a prophet, be like, you need to learn maybe how to love people because this isn't exactly my love language. Angry signs, right? In the five love languages, there isn't like an updated version. Sixth, angry signs, right? Uh, that person needs to aspire to the love of the shepherd, right? So, so uh, most people that I know within the church have pretty low expectations when it comes to gifts. They become a Christian and they're like, I just want to kind of help out. I kind of want to do something if I can. I want to have a role. I want to have a part. I'm not looking for anything too big. Don't worry about me, right? Paul says you should aspire to the higher gifts, the higher callings. In fact, when, when he talks about what an elder looks like, a leader in the church, he says it is a noble thing to aspire to that office. We should want those things that are greater. So we don't just settle in our gift and say, like, that's it, and, and I don't care about anything else uh, beyond that. But what he's doing here is he's talking about these different parts of the body and everything as he, as he goes through all of them and, and asks these questions about them, right? Should everybody really be the same? No. He says, we all need to be different. As he's kind of winding up for the pitch because he says this after he makes a statement. He says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So, Paul has just made so much sense for these people about how to be in a community together. And the things he says about gifts and about parts of the body have had such a profound impact on, like, our understanding as the church that, that it goes far beyond the church, right? Like, when you think about any group that you're a part of, you can apply this to it and say, what does a healthy body really look like? But even there, Paul says, as helpful as this is, as good as this is, um, there's actually something that you need to take into account that is even more important in your life than this. There is a way that is a more excellent way, and this is what it is. And then he goes on in chapter 13 to say, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. No one can say this like a leader in the church can say it. Because the leaders in the church are the ones that are telling people, seek after these things. These are the most important things as you are a disciple of Jesus. And so what he adds on now is he says this. He says these different parts of the body, they're all different, we're all unique. They do one thing that is the same. They do one thing that is the same, and the most important thing is that we love always. 
the most important thing that we can do, that we must be focused on doing, is loving always. So while your gift is different, you are different, we are different, we are always saying that love is the first priority. Why is that difficult for us? Why do we need to hear that? Because love is the hardest thing to do. We often write off, just be loving, just love people. I just try to love people because we actually think of it as the easiest thing to do. We, we kind of say it like it's an easy thing to do. Love is just how you feel. It's just being nice. It's just being apathetic and not caring and staying out of people's business. It's just putting up with people. It's not punching people in the face. Some of us have extremely low, like, definitions of what love is, right? Like, uh, and, and, and we make it sound like it's this thing that's like uh, the, the very bottom rung. What Paul is saying is that the most important thing and all of these other things is that you love always. How do we know he's saying this? Because Paul just gave the most vivid description of like the best thing you could aspire in these other areas. And why is he saying that? Because he's like, listen, okay, I get it. Somebody's going to say, but wait a second, I know that I'm not, okay, no one's actually going to say this. But what you're thinking is, is you're thinking, okay, fine, so I'm a jerk, so I'm not loving, okay, so, I, so I'm not compassionate, I don't care for people, I don't exhibit those kinds of things, but I have faith that can move mountains. But I have sacrificed so much, Right? but I speak powerful words, but I speak in tongues even, which means that the Holy Spirit has clearly, God is showing you through me doing this, that he is like, that he is empowering me to do ministry, to speak to other people. So what about that? And the response is, if you don't have love, that thing that seems so good is actually bad. It, 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 it like puts a bad taste in your mouth, right? So the wonderful, beautiful sound becomes like a cymbal and a, and a gong and a clanging drum. And there's so much behind this to the, the role that cymbals and, and gongs and things like that played in cultic, uh, cultic worship and all kinds of things that he could be alluding to. But honestly, I think just the most plain example of it is someone banging a cymbal next to your head, right? Uh, you could be the most eloquent uh, speaker, and yet without love, what is that but a, but, a, but a clanging cymbal up against the side of your head, right? And if you've had kids, you know exactly what that sounds like. When I was in college, I was a bank teller. And I was a really good bank teller because um, I was very friendly and we were definitely very big on customer service at our bank. Um, it was kind of all about, you know, like, you know, this is kind of at a time when everyone's doing online banking and people have recognized. I worked for a really, really big, like, bank, Bank of America. And so people, like, it wasn't like people, you know, saw it as like their small hometown bank. So they, they would, you know, they, I don't think they really cared much if they switched from this bank to that bank to this one. And we were like, we had all these rules and policies and things that made things difficult for people a lot of times and cost them money. And so, um, so we were like, okay, we got to be really friendly. We want to be really good at customer service. We want to remember people's names. We wanted to, you know, we, we want to really, you know, we, we want to be professional, right? So we, we, I had to go. It's so weird when you're like in college and you go get a job and then you have to go out and spend a bunch of money on like nice clothes. I had to go buy ties and, and like, like nice pants and shirts and suits and stuff that like I had to have this huge like wardrobe of that stuff. And um, I lived in like a, like a dumpy apartment with my roommate who also was a teller at Bank of America. I mean, if you want to go crazy, 
like share a room with a person and then stand next to a teller window with them for like eight hours a day. You will go crazy no matter who that person is. Um, but I was a great teller. I was friendly. I remembered people's names. I talked to them all the time and, and, and I looked very nice and clean cut. People often complimented me on my nice ties and, and how clean my shirt looked and um, what a handsome young man I was, um, mostly about that. Um, and this was all through like 17 inch thick bulletproof glass, you know, so it takes a lot to kind of project through that. Um, and the only problem that I really ever, in fact, my grandma used to, uh, my grandma uh, lived around the corner from this bank, and she used to come to this bank, and oh man, she loved it. When she like got to the front of the line and saw me, and I saw her, you know, she was just like, there he is, my grandson, the banker, right? Uh, Because that's like, that's a big deal, I guess. And uh, we used to have to write um, thank you cards to the people that came in, they, they would say, hey, you know, I want you to write three thank you cards a day. I want you to, like, remember that person's name and write them a thank you card as if getting a thank you card from a giant bank is going to make you go, wow, really? It's like a, you know, that's great. But anyway, they made us do it. Well, I kind of wasn't very good at doing it, so I usually just sent them all to my grandma. And, um, and I wrote different things. And I wrote things like, you know, we know what you've done. We're, we're keeping all your money. And, like, uh, we know who you are. And, like, don't ever come back in here, you know, um, and things like that because my grandma's funny like that. Anyway. I was a really great bank teller. The only thing I wasn't really that good at, it turned out, was like the money part of it. Um, I, uh, I was pretty bad at what they call balancing your drawer, which is at the end of the day having the right amount of money in your drawer. Um, one time a lady came in, and super nice lady, and we talked, and just she, so she was fun. And uh, she needed to get a bunch of money out, and so I, I helped her with that. And uh, at the end of the day, my drawer was $10,000 short. And I thought, that's, that's a lot, even for me. And, and, and sure enough, what had happened was I, I needed, she wanted $10,000. I went and bought $20,000 from uh, the vault, as, as they call it. And then just, we were having such a good, natural, you know, flow of conversation. I accidentally gave her $20,000 instead of ten, and she just walked on out of the building. And, um, and so, you know. It's like we all make mistakes, right? Um, and, uh, well, fortunately, she came back the next day, <laughs> and she brought the $10,000 back. And I remember talking to my boss the day before, uh, you know, because I had to go home that day, and I hadn't heard from the lady, and I was just hoping she'd come back in. And I remember talking to my boss, and my boss said, uh, so... Um, I, you know, fortunately, I was a very honest uh, person, and so she wasn't worried that I stole $10,000. Um, she was like, no, I don't really think you're capable of that, but, um, but um, you know, if the money doesn't come back, you know, yeah, we're probably going to have to, you know, fire you, obviously. Um, um, and I was like, listen, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm starting to think maybe I should do something else here. And she said, you know, we're so, like, desperate for, like, good, like, for, for workers, for people to work, that how about I just tell you um, from moving forward, let's say the money comes back, I'll just tell you if I'm going to let you go, and, uh, and then you could just quit or something, and, you know, we can, so that, she did come back, she brought the money back, but, um, you know, I would say, like, I was a really good bank teller, and the only thing that I, I, I really kind of struggled with a lot of the time was, like I said, just the money part of it, right, the, the keeping track of all the money, because apparently that's part of the job too, right? Uh, when I tell people that who work at banks, they say, you were a terrible bank teller. And, uh, it's, and it makes me have more confidence in our banking system that they knew that as well as you. Um, the reason I use that example is because uh, as, as Paul is talking 
to the church about all these gifts and all these things that people focus on and care about, he's basically saying to them, listen, uh, there's this one thing, and if you can't get this down, then it kind of makes everything else irrelevant, right? Uh, in the very same way, right, you can be, I could be a friendly, you know, clean-cut bank teller, and if I give people $10,000 too much accidentally, then I shouldn't be a bank teller because that's a pretty big part of the job. What, what Paul's saying here is he's saying for a follower of Jesus, when in doubt, or even when not in doubt, the most important thing is that we, all of us, are loving one another and those outside the church and those in our families always. When in doubt, love. There is never going to be a situation when you are not expected to try and love someone else, you know. I think that if many of us are honest, we think that God, we do have this sort of image in the back of our mind of God sitting up kind of in like a big lifeguard chair or something, looking down on us, just evaluating the way that we're living and the things that we're doing. And while I don't think that it works that way, um, I, I do know that as God does look upon us, that there are many things that I'm sure sadden him and, 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 make, him, uh, and make him sad about the state of maybe how a Christian would choose to live or the church, but... We have to know that as he is looking upon his children, watching us live out our lives, watching us have our jobs, watching us with our families, no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter how old we are, no matter what we're going through, that the thing that is most important is he is looking at his children saying, are you loving each other? That is the most important thing to me. I mean, Paul really is saying that. He's holding it up against these other things that we're going to focus on. And that's important because we focus a lot on all of those other things so much of the time. What that means is that, is that yeah, God would look down upon his church and, and he would lament if there is a person who desires to know the truth of the gospel, but they have no one to teach it to them because no one has responded to that calling or those that have don't take it seriously and they don't try to do it clearly and they don't try to do it concisely. Uh, that causes God to be uh, saddened, of course. That, that, that if someone desires to respond to the gospel and has a heart that's open to it, but no one is willing to go in faith and proclaim that message to them, that God laments that thing. That if a person um, calls themselves a Christian but cannot uh, sacrifice and detach themselves from the world enough, but they worship idols and they, they, they are owned by the things that they own, that a person that cannot sacrifice is saddening to God. That if there is a person who has a prophetic gift and has, and has the ability to even be used of the Spirit, and, and that person can be seen as great in the church, and God can even use that person in that way, that for all of those things that, of course, would make God lament that he wants to see them more in the church, he wants to see them happen in the lives of people, that above all of that, beyond all of that, above all else, God would say that his desire is to see that his children love each other. The thing that is most important, the most important thing is that we love each other always. This is what leads into uh, this description that Paul gives us on what love looks like. Because love is not as relative as we think it is. Love isn't a list of poetic sounding things that we get to add our own stuff to. 
Um, I'm, I'm performing a wedding this next weekend for a couple, and um, I told them they, could, they, can, they can write their own vows if they want to, but when they asked me to read 1 Corinthians 13, I didn't say, would you like me to rewrite it for you? Uh, because this list that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians is not a sort of an abstract, fluffy, frilly-sounding, poetic thing that we can just add whatever we want and take whatever we want and say, what do you think love is? What do you think love is? How do you feel that love is? This is an objective list of things that Paul intends for us to look at and say when we compare it to our lives, am I doing this? Because if I'm not, then I'm not being loving. Am I doing this and how can I do it more? Um, this isn't actually a series that we're going through because we feel like our church is bad at loving each other. This is a series that we're going through because everyone that I talk to feels like they're at the end of their rope when it comes to their relationships with other people. Because we either feel disconnected from so many people that we feel isolated and alone, or we feel like we are being forced to live life with the same group of people in very close proximity, and it makes us feel overwhelmed. I mean, as I was walking around and talking to people at family camp, I was, uh, you know, as you talk to a parent who's about to start homeschooling a child that they don't feel fully equipped to homeschool or is, is going to start leading them through that, when you start talking to a teacher who's going to begin teaching from their home while homeschooling their child and also trying to care for um, all of the other responsibilities that they have, while another spouse is maybe in the other room working from their job from home. When they stop and think about it, honestly, you just get overwhelmed. You feel kind of hopeless because you go, I don't even know how this is supposed to work. I don't know how I'm supposed to, what am I supposed to even focus on right now? What am I supposed to care about right now? Because there's so many people telling me, well, this is the thing to make sure that we focus on and that we do. Make sure that your family is like this, that your kids can do this. Make sure that in your marriage, you just take care of this and focus on this. In the church, we have to make sure that we do X, Y, and Z. It's in that time that we have to stop and we have to say, what is the most important thing for all of us to be able to stop and say, am I doing this now? And that thing is love. And so my hope is that as we go through this over the next probably couple of months, as we take our time to go through these different characteristics of love, that not just in the church, but that we are able to stop and look in our own homes and our own relationships and our own families, and we're able to ask the question, like, can I just take some time to think about what it means to be patient with those around me and what it means to be kind, what it means to hope always and endure always, what it means to not bear grudge and not to be overly inflated with a sense of myself, but to put their needs in front of mine. Um, if we can focus on that, I think it can be such a life-giving thing for us and it can give us hope. But above all else, we have to go through this and move forward knowing that our God is a gracious God. The reason why Christians can love better than anyone else on the planet is not because we have even a more comprehensive description of what love is. The reason we can love more than anyone else can love is because we have first been loved. We don't have to love in order to receive love. We don't have to give so that we can have. We love with sort of an endlessly full love tank that we can give out to other people. And if you've been forgiven, if you live in Jesus, then that means that above all else, the thing that God offers us that matters the most is he says to us, I love you, 
You are accepted by me. You are acceptable to me. That the enemy is the great accuser, meaning that the enemy wants to throw things at you that makes you feel like you're not good enough and I need you to prove things to me and and we don't stand on good terms with one another. Know that Jesus has paid the price. Know that you're my child and I love you and that it is in that place of overflowing with my love that you can give it freely to others. We are the people who can have that and say that. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the love that you give us you, um, when Paul talks in Ephesians, he, he, he writes that his prayer is that the church there, a church that is healthy and is doing good things, he says that he longs for them to be able to understand the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of your love, God. The reason he says that is because the number one thing that probably limits us from being able to love one another is the fact that we don't think much about the love that you have for us, God. And that if we would just comprehend that love that we already have, that we already have possession of, that it's ours, that it would change us and we would be overflowing with it, Lord. So would you help us as we go through this time in this series, in this season, would you help us to not just focus on what we need to do and how we need to change and what we need to try, but that we would focus on your love and that it would never leave us feeling inadequate to the task, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.